0: Here's another in NBC's great parade of new shows. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent.
1: NBC brings you Dragnet.
2: You're a detective
1: sergeant. You're assigned a homicide. A mad killer is loose in the city. In every instance, he leaves the murder weapon behind. There are no fingerprints, no clues to the killer's identity.
0: Your job, get him. Dragnets. The documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action.
1: It was Tuesday, June 3rd. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was off duty reporting back in on an emergency call. It was 3.57 a.m. when I got to the basement of the city hall. The carpool.
0: Let's go, Friday.
2: Sorry to call you back in. Couldn't
1: be helped. All right, Ben. Okay, Skipper. What's up, Ben? Double murder. When? I don't know. Found out about it, oh, 40 minutes ago. You got any ideas? Roughly same M.O. Was that 6413 Norwich, Skipper? No, 6430. What do you mean, the same M.O.? The same guy. Brickbat killer. How many does this make? Counting tonight, four. We got anything at all?
2: smudged fingerprint we can't even classify.
1: Sounds like a smart operator. We
2: gotta get him. If we have to shake down the city from one end to the other. Big job, Skipper. Big killer.
1: At 4.26 a.m., we pulled up in front of 6430 Norwich Drive, a small group of bungalow apartments facing on an oval-shaped garden court. Two uniformed officers were stationed at the door to the apartment.
2: Hiya, Chief. Hiya, fellas.
1: We went inside. Wellberg from Homicide was waiting for us. This
3: way. In here. Well, there they are. Yeah. Mother, daughter.
1: Joe, on the floor beside the bed. Yeah, a red brick.
3: (laughs)
4: Miss Hafters,
1: we know how you must feel about all this, but would you please try to answer a few more questions for us?
4: Yes. All right. Oh, Margaret.
1: Miss Hafters, how long have you known Mrs. Diaz and her daughter?
4: Nine years. This November they moved next door. I remember it so well. We got along right from the start.
1: And as far as you know, the only close friends the mother and daughter had live right here in the apartment court? Yes.
4: Margaret was a pretty girl, but she was no chaser. No boyfriends. Very close to her mother. The two of them very close.
1: Did they keep any amount of valuables in the apartment? Money, jewelry, things like that?
4: Oh, no. Mrs. Deas and Margaret didn't have much, you know. Very modest income. They both worked.
1: And you can think of no good reason. Oh,
4: no, no. Oh, poor Margaret. Poor Mrs. Deas. Lying in there. Shock.
1: Wellberg Yes,
3: yeah, Sergeant
1: Would you show Ms. Hafters back to her apartment? Sure, Sergeant Thank you, Ms. Hafters We appreciate yeah, it
4: Thank you oh, Martha.
1: Oh, Well, Joe Let's check with Ed He's back in the bedroom
2: You get anything from
1: the neighbors? Yeah, The usual, Ed No jealous boyfriends, ex-husbands Nothing like that Boys find any evidence yet, Skipper? No, still working on it you got any theories? Well, we
2: know the killings were all done by the same guy. Mm-hmm. Cuts the same pattern out of the window screen. Cuts the same pattern with a glass cutter out of the window. Reaches in and flips the locks.
1: All right, where's that leaving?
2: Well, before he gets inside, he makes sure there are only women in the house. That means he probably watches the house for a few days. Yeah. Once he gets inside, he wants only one thing, to kill. He's never taken any valuables. As far as we can tell, he's never searched for any.
1: What kind of a man works like that? I think the guy's killed crazy. Hey, fellas. Yes, Donner? Here's a break. Two fair prints. One thumb, one forefinger. What'd you get, Pete? Only got nine points. Not enough to go into court, but enough to make him. We'll know him when we get him. Yeah. Found the prints on the lens of the old lady's eyeglasses. Probably knocked him off the night table when he went after her. And When he was done, he put him back on the table. Yeah. Had blood on his hands, see? Yeah. That's funny, isn't it? Why would he go to the trouble of picking up the woman's glasses after he killed her? We'll ask him when we find him. All right, Ben, Joe. Might have something for you. We can use it, Lee. Hold it just a minute. Yeah. Crime lab, Jones. Yeah.
2: Yeah, all right. I'll tell him. Right, Ed. Backstrand. If you're through checking the victim's clothes by 8 o'clock, you can knock off for sleep until noon.
1: What if we're not through?
2: Take it up with the chaplain. Here's what I wanted to show you. Over here. A couple of casts.
1: Bare prints. That's right. Those from the Diaz place? Found them outside the dining room window in the flower bed. Take a look. Mm-hmm. Good cast. Size nine. Ten. Uh, missing toe there, huh? Left foot, first toe. That's lucky. Well, the guy took his shoes off before he went in that house. That's the way it looks. You leave any other prints Lee? Three, with the shoes on. Here they are. Here. Yeah. How would you say the guy is built, Lee? Oh, from the impression, pretty heavy man. There's no full length of stride, or I might give you an idea of his height. How about the bricks, Lee?
2: Here they are, all three of them. Used this one in the first murder, this one in the second, this one last night.
1: Leaves them around like calling cards, and there's no way to check them.
2: You'll never get a fingerprint off a common red brick like this bin. The surface is too
1: rough. Well, we got an idea of his weight. We know that the first toe's missing from his left foot. That's something. The one we had yesterday. We can check that missing toe in the amputation file, Joe. Yeah. Well, we better get back. Pete ought to have those prints ready, too. Thanks a lot, Lee. Okay, fellas. Say, they post the bodies yet? Yeah, they're doing it now. Same as the first two. The brain? Concussion, hemorrhage. They didn't have a chance. Hold it a minute. Crime lab Jones. Sure, just a minute. Either one of you fellas. I'll get it, Joe. Okay. Here, Romero. Yeah. Good, we'll be right over. They got a make on those two fingerprints. Okay, Joe. Single print file. Made him on the index finger. Let me see, Pete. Uh-huh. Take a look, Ben. Yeah. Doesn't look like a killer, does he, Joe? Kind of nice looking. That's right, Pete. I said the same thing about John Dillinger. The name at the top of the makesheet read, Carlos Richard Monterey. Male, Caucasian, age 19. Height, 5 feet 11 inches. Weight, 165 pounds. Dark brown hair, dark brown eyes. Last known address, 1663 Naples Street, Los Angeles. Previous arrests, one... Auto theft. February 8, 1936. That was all. Ben and I had been expecting more. The information on the mama sheet for Monterey was 13 years old. So was the picture. So was the description. So was the address. In 13 years, a man can change in a thousand ways. So can his habits, his appearance, his address. In 13 years, everything can change except two things. A man's fingerprints and a physical deformity. toe on left foot, Carlos Richard Monterey. Here it is, Joe. 1663 Naples. Yeah, come on. Somebody's coming. Mm-hmm. Yes? What
5: is it?
1: We're police officers. We'd like to ask you a few questions.
5: Oh, yes. Uh, would you like to come in? Thank you, ma'am. Yes?
1: Would you mind telling us your name?
5: Monterey. Isabel Monterrey. What is it you want? You're married? Yes. My husband is Francisco Monterrey. Would you explain why you are here?
1: We thought you might be able to help us. We're looking for a man named Carlos Cal- Monterey. I...
5: Don't understand you.
1: We're looking for him, ma'am. We'd like to talk to him. Do you know where he is?
5: Yes. Carlos is dead seven years ago. He's dead, my husband told me.
1: And does your husband know Carlos, or did he know him?
5: He was his brother.
1: What about your husband's parents, Miss Monterey? Where are they?
5: They're both dead. Sometime now.
1: Have you ever met Carlos?
5: No, never. I have only heard of him.
1: What have you heard of him, Miss Monterey? Do not ask me. This is important, very important.
5: Francisco would not like it if, if I told you.
1: It's important, Miss Monterey. Believe us.
5: Carlos he's sick. His mind. For eight years Francisco has not seen him, not heard from him. He thinks he's
1: dead. But he only thinks so, Miss Monterey. No one's told him his brother's dead. He just thinks so.
5: What else is there to think?
1: Where's your husband now?
5: At his work, the store. Rivera Street near Main. Grocery. Monterey Cadroid grocery.
3: Here's your change. Thank you, Mrs. Myers. Now, look, officers, you know how it is. You don't like to let these things get out. That's why I trust you. You can trust us,
1: Mr. Monterey. We just want to check on a few things.
3: Oh, fine. Always glad to help out if I can.
1: Well, can you tell us if your brother was ever in a mental institution in his life?
3: Oh, I know there was nothing wrong. 1923. Got a little bad, so mom and dad had to put him away for a while. Just till he calmed down. I remember the day Sometimes Dumb, stupid kid What did he you know? Standing there by himself in the train Crying The public nurse Stupid way he cried What do you do? I cried too I was only 10, Sergeant I,
1: I saw him go He was alone Later on, Mr. Monterey Your brother was released from the state institution
3: Yeah, he was 16 And, and he started running around Playing tough Carried a gun Lived by himself He never came around he dropped from sight about 1938. You haven't heard from him since then? Nothing. Never seen him.
1: Do you know of anybody who might have seen him?
3: Ooh, there was a girl he had. Uh, Anita something. On Sotelo Street. Uh, Anita Martin, yeah, that's it. Soteo Street. Maybe she's seen him. Ask her. Maybe she's seen him. Carlos?
4: Carlos Monterrey? Uh, not in a year. Last March he was in. When I was working at the Peacock, down on South Main. He came in, we talked for a while. That was all.
1: And you haven't seen Carlos for the past two months or so?
4: I tell you, no.
1: Has he written to you? Has he phoned you?
4: Um, Once, three weeks ago, he phoned. Here. He left a message with my girlfriend. But he didn't call back again. Now that's it. That's all I know.
1: Thank you, Miss Martin. Here's our card. If he does call one, you'll let us know?
4: Yeah. I'll let you know.
1: You like Carlos, is that it, Anita?
4: Like him? No, I didn't like him. He was funny, but he was nice. You know, I pitied him.
1: Why did you pity him, Miss Martin?
4: Well, he was a good fellow who was strange. He could smile, you know, he had a nice smile, but you could tell he was never laughing. There was something in his mind, something... Oh, I don't know.
1: At least a year. Closer to two, I haven't seen Carlos. No letters, not a card, nothing. He was in the East the last time I heard. When was that? A year ago, January. I was in here. He sent me a calendar. Sometimes he could get along fine, very well. Other times, terrible. He couldn't keep him down. How'd he manage to stay out of jail, that way, Vicente? I don't know. Sometimes he should have been in jail five times over. You say you don't know of anybody who might have a recent picture of Carlos, a snapshot? No. No, no one I can think of. Okay, Vincent. here's our card. If you do think of somebody, let us know, will you? It'll help. Sure, glad
3: to. If I hear of anybody. What kind of a day is it outside?
1: Hot. Hot. By five o'clock that afternoon, Ben and I were certain of one thing. Carlos Monterey was in the city of Los Angeles, somewhere... We drove back to the office and told Ed Backstrand about our interviews with Monterey's relatives and his friends. Inquiries and requests for further identification and information on him were immediately relayed to the state mental institutions. The 13-year-old picture of Monterey taken from the files was copied and distributed with a note of caution as to the age of the photograph. An APB was sent out. Stakeouts were placed at the home of Monterey's brother, at the brother's store, and at the apartment of Anita Martin. A special detail of 300 men was ordered to join the dragnet already in operation. The details at the airport and the bus terminals were alerted, as well as the details at the Union Depot and the main post office. By 6 o'clock that night, almost 1,000 men were actively working at the job of tracking down Carlos Monterey. At 6.30 p.m., Ben and I drew a four-hour relief period. We drove out to Ben's place, and his wife fixes some dinner. At 10.30 that night, we reported into the office, picked up Ed Backstrand, and we drove out to join the manhunt.
6: Unit 32R on the corner of South Flower and Loomis, the 390W, KMA 367. Unit 12A, Code 1. 66A at 864 Wall Street. See the man about a 507, KMA
5: 42 east Grand, Apartment 10, 311,
1: KMA 367. We cruised with the dragnet operation until 5 o'clock that morning. Ben and I took turns driving. Actually, the tremendous job of scouring 500 square miles of city for one man was only beginning. Unless there was an unexpected break, the search for Carlos Monterey could wear on for weeks. It did. Night after night, the manhunt went on, and day after day. There was no break. Sixteen days later, on a Sunday night, I went to bed early. I read a while, and then I turned off the lamp and went to sleep. Hmm? Hello? Friday talking.
3: Sorry, Joe.
2: Get in here as fast as you can.
1: Hmm? What's the matter?
2: That girl Monterey knew. The one you talked to?
1: Yeah? She left her apartment, went to her girlfriend's. Yeah? She's dead. There it is. Ordinary red brick. Found it by the body. How long has she been dead, Skipper? She was seen alive about an hour and a half ago. Got three bare footprints. Good length of stride. Found them down in the lot beside the house. What do they look like? Same guy. First toe missing from the left foot. The same weight impression. Should be about five foot eleven.
2: That checks out with what you got, doesn't it? All right, so it's the same guy.
1: What about those shoes we found, Lee? Yeah, they correspond. They were impregnated with foreign matter. What'd you find? Particles of lettuce leaf, dry onion skin, traces of red
2: cabbage. Maybe a vegetable counter. Maybe.
1: What about the city wholesale market down on Front Street?
2: What about any market in Los Angeles?
1: No, Lee, that wholesale market is big enough to hide anybody. Hundreds of transients work in there. Some of them even sleep there. For a guy like Monterey, it'd be perfect. That's a fair guess. Check it when it opens. They open at 2 a.m. 2.30 now. All right, get back to the
2: office and pick up as many extra men as you need. Get down there right away. Okay, Ed. Now, you know he's a rough one, so watch it.
1: On Monday, June 23rd, at two minutes past 3 a.m., we pulled up at the city wholesale produce market. With the exception of 54 police officers in plain clothes who mingled with the buyers and sellers, business went along as usual. The market itself covered almost three square blocks in the lower part of the downtown area. It was divided off into hundreds of individual stalls by flimsy wooden partitions. To make the search even tougher, the place was crowded. For the first 45 minutes, we had the men circulate at random through the crowd on the chance that one of them might spot Carlos Monterey from the 13-year-old picture. It didn't happen. After that, we started a systematic canvas. We talked to the customers, we talked to the managers of the different booths, we gave them Monterey's description, we showed them his picture. Nobody recognized him. We checked the employment records one by one, not a sign. Sorry, Sergeant. Like to help. I've never seen the guy. Okay, Mr. Snyder, thank you. We sure pick the sweet jobs, don't we? Oh, yeah, we could spend a year at this. Oh, Sergeant, Sergeant Friday. Yeah, Komansky, did you find something? guy at the booth over there against the far wall. Thinks he might have hired Monterey a couple of days ago. Come on, Ben. Where? Over there, Sergeant. You showing Monterey's picture? Yeah, he thinks it might be him. Mr. Fresnetti, this is Sergeant Romero, Sergeant Friday. Yes, I told you, boy, Sergeant, this fellow Carlos, I hired him to help uh, last Thursday. Big rush for me now, so I hire him. You sure he's the man? In the picture? I think so. A little older, maybe. Oh, but I know faces. He's the man. You're looking for him? You say you hired this man last Thursday? That's right. It's a big rush for me. Now in the morning, I I hire him Thursday. He worked uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But he don't show up this morning, so I got uh, no use. Too many men to pick from. He don't show up, I let him go. What kind of work did he do for you? Same as he did before. Schiller down there. Heavy work. Moving the stores, cleaning up. What kind of produce does Schiller handle, Mr. Fransinetti? Fancy. Very fancy vegetables. uh, choice. New potatoes, uh, expensive red onions... uh, Schiller sells to the big hotels. Does Schiller handle brown onions, Mr. Francis Oh,
3: only the best. Big dealer that the Schiller
1: sells it to the big hotels. How long has this Carlos been working around the market?
3: Oh, I don't know. Is it just the like of the rest? First he worked for me, then a Largo Massini, then a Schiller.
1: Hey, why are you looking so hard for him? He stole something? He murdered somebody. Him? My Mommy. Murder? Do you have any idea where Carlos lives? Well, me? No, no. And if he comes back here, I tell him to get out. I got nothing to do with this trouble. No, you'll tell him nothing, Mr. President. Eddie. Here's our card. If you see Monterey again, call us. Say nothing to him. Oh, sure, sure. i dream mean, him. But... Uh, Joe, call the chief at of the office, will you? Message just came in. Thanks, Al. Come on, Ben. Yeah, there's a the phone booth. See? No, I don't. Where? Straight ahead. Little, little left. Oh, yeah. You got a nickel? Mm, let's see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you are. Thanks. I'll see what Ed wants. <laughs> Two
6: five one one.
1: Two five one one. Chief of detective's office had them. Hi, Mike. Ed there. Ed, take it on extension two, will you? Backstrand talking. Friday, Ed. Move fast on this one, Joe. What's up? Main post office. Carlos Monterey picked up a letter there less than five minutes ago. Come on, Ben. There's Ed over there with Welberg. Yeah. Traffic short, jammed up around here. Hi, Ed. Friday, Romero. You all set, Wilbur? All set, Chief. Spring Street to San Pedro. Sunset the first. Got it covered. Good. What's the story? Post
2: office detail tipped us off. Five minutes after eight, a man answering Carlos Monterey's description picked up a letter at the general delivery window. That was 16 minutes ago. Who
1: spotted him? Sam Lane. Got a look at him just as he was leaving the window. Called to him to stop, but Monterey ran. Lane called me and we threw a net over the area for six blocks around. And Monterey's still somewhere inside this area?
2: I don't know how I could have gotten
1: out. What's next?
2: Well, I'll give him an hour to break for it. After that, we start a house-to-house search of the whole area. Stop all pedestrian and vehicular traffic for identification. You're gonna jam up
1: the depot traffic. That's cheaper than murder, Romero. Get going. The first hour, we counted off in five-minute segments. Like Backstrand, we felt close enough to Monterey to touch him. But he still wasn't there. The north and south ends of the blockade started to move in, slowly, searching every store, every house, every conceivable place where a man might hide out. In the meantime, Ben and I worked the Spring Street side of the blockade, watching the faces of the pedestrians as they came through, one by one, examining all vehicles and their drivers. The morning wore on, the sun came out, and it started to get warm. By 11 o'clock that morning, Monterey still had not been found. The temperature was 93 in Los Angeles was still climbing. The search went on. At ten minutes past 2 p.m., Backstrand made the rounds. How's it look, Skipper? Not good. Going slow. How much longer, you figure?
2: I don't know. It'll go to after dark, that's sure. District down here is like a rat's nest.
1: Yeah. Nothing?
2: Nothing. But he's someplace inside this blockade. He's got to be.
1: Any chance of getting relief for the men in our squad? Some of them been working straight through since yesterday.
2: i uh, I'll see. Mm. Check with me
1: around five this afternoon.
2: Thank you, Scaver. Keep a sharp lookout. One slip. That's all it takes.
1: The search went on. At three o'clock that afternoon, the temperature was 95. We sweltered and we waited. At 3:45, Backstrand sent a squad of men into the Union Depot to search it from top to bottom. There was one false alarm when one of the men thought he saw Monterey slipping out a side door into a taxi. He turned out to be a train conductor. 25 minutes past 4, Backstrand passed along the order to our detail to start moving in house by house. It was a tedious job and it went slow. The men were tired. At 5.30, the relief squad showed up. Ben and I stayed on. After another two hours of house-to-house searching, the trap was narrowed down to a three-square block area, a single block wide and three blocks long. It started to get dark. Backstrand ordered out batteries of floodlights. By 8 p.m., the cordon closed in around the last two square blocks. Lines are all set, Skipper. Ready to move. Good. What do you think?
2: I will know pretty soon, one way or the other.
3: Frank, keep that traffic moving.
2: (whistles) All right, you two, get going.
1: See you later, Skipper. Joe, let's take a look in here. Okay. Sure is an old building. Yeah. Where'd Kamansky go? I don't know. He's here a minute ago. Oh, wait. There's his flashlight. It's on the end of the corridor there. He's signaling. Yeah, come on. Kamansky. Yes. Down below, Sergeant, in the basement. Come on. Monterey? He's been there, I think. Here, yeah, this way. Where? Over here. Now, watch your step. The light's bad. Here he is. Says he's a janitor. Oh, my head. He's been slugged. All right, come on. How'd it happen? Can you tell us? Yeah, a man, a big man, hit me. I came down to empty the baskets. He hit me and ran. And over to the new building. The new building? Is that the one next door? Yeah, just a few minutes ago. Nobody's come out of this building for the past half hour. Every door in the place is guarded. No, no, not the doors. He went through the tunnel. I saw him. Over there's the tunnel. I'll take a look, Joe. Mm. Yeah, the tunnel connects the two basements. Same company, old building, new building. The tunnel connects the basements. Joe, come on. Yeah. Kamansky, get out the backstrand. Tell him what's happened. Right, Sergeant. And call an ambulance.
3: Right.
1: All right, Ben, through the tunnel. Watch where you're going. The light's bad. Yeah, it is. That a door up ahead there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Good, there's a stairway. Come on. Watch the doors. Joe, the elevator. They're both on the third floor. Let's head for the stairs. Ben, come on. Look, top of the stairs. There he goes. All right, hold it, you. Duck in the elevator, Joe. going down. Well, we'll never make it on the stairs. Joe, look, there's other elevator. The control lever spins. Let's try it anyway. Yeah. All right, kick the control lever. Kick it, Ben. Yeah, good. All right, Ben, knock the lever back. Come on, quick. Yeah. What's the matter? Door's jammed. We're going back. All right, let's kick it. Here. Yeah, that doesn't. Can you reach the door control? Wait just yes, a minute. I'll see. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's still in the building. Both elevators are here now. Yeah. Oh. Down the hall, Ben. The office on the left, I think. Yeah. Okay. Here we are. All right. Keep clear of the door. All right, Monterey. Put on that gun and come on out. I'll kill you! I'll kill you! One of you. you! Okay, Joe. Let's take it. Watch it, Ben. He's throwing everything
3: he can
1: get his hands on. I'll kill you!
3: I'll kill you! Get away! I'll kill you!
1: All right, Monterey. Come on, you! Everywhere you kill you! Everywhere you kill Okay, Ben, take him. Yeah. Get <sighs> them <sighs> huh. Nice looking guy. Clean cut. Yeah. Doesn't figure, does it? What's that? My wife would say, he doesn't look like a killer, does he? What's a killer supposed to look like? The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent.
0: Carlos Monterey was examined by five different psychiatrists appointed by the Superior Court and was found to be sane. He was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 17th in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of W.A. Wharton, acting chief of police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's
1: program is dedicated to motorcycle patrolman John Kramer of the El Paso, Texas Sheriff's Department. Who on the afternoon of April 26, 1940, gave his life so that yours might be more secure?
0: Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. Your tune for the stars on NBC.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent.
0: NBC brings you Dragnet.
2: You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to burglary detail. A gang of hijackers has started to work in your city truckloads of valuable merchandise have vanished. The thieves are clever, seem to have a foolproof system.
0: Your job, find them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, You will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action.
1: It was Thursday, March 6th. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the record bureau, and it was 5.35 a.m. when I got to room 2A. Interrogation room. Read this to him, Ben. Yeah. 2,600 dozen nylon stockings, 45 bolts of silk, 58 cases imported perfume. Where are you dumping this stuff, Laval? That's what we want to know. I told you the truth. I have nothing to do with it. I don't know anything about it. What was this stolen way bill doing in the cab of your truck? How many times? Do I have to tell you, I don't know. Your fingerprints are all over it. You must have carried it there. I didn't carry it there. Somebody's out to frame me. How many in the hijack gang, Lavelle? I'm not in a hijack game. I told you I don't know. When are you going to let me go? Who's the head of the gang? I don't know any head of the gang I want to get out of here. You're covering for somebody. I'm not covering for anybody. You take the rap for all this, you're going to have a beard down to your knees by the time you get out. I'm not taking any rap. Then let's have it. Oh, I'm tired. $42,000 worth. You know who took it, you know where it is. It could have disappeared anywhere, on the way from the east to the, the thousand place. Nothing was missing from those shipments when they came in on the train. Everything was there when they were unloaded at the warehouse. Then I don't know, I don't know. Every dollar's worth was accounted for when it was loaded on the truck. Well, where is it now? I'm tired. We've been here all night, let me... Lavelle. let me read it for you again. 2,600 dozen nylon stockings, 45 bolts of silk, 58 cases imported perfume. And you're trying to tell us somebody hijacked all that from the trucks without you knowing it? The trucks were
2: loaded at the warehouse. We went out to eat. We came back, got in the trucks, delivered the stuff, and that's all I know.
1: And while you were out eating, the receipts for the load disappeared, too. Is that right, Lavelle? I don't know where the waybills are. The shipping truck, that's his job. We talked to him. He says one of you could have taken the waybills. Well, then he's lying. I didn't take him. Then what was this waybill doing in the cab of your truck? I told you, I don't know. Somebody's trying to frame me. Why? I don't know. Somebody, I don't know why. Then you better come up with an answer, mister. Look, I'm tired. We've been here since six o'clock last night. We're all tired. Who are you covering for? What are you trying to build? I of that coffee left, Ben? It's cool. That's all right. You want some, Lavelle? No. All right, now look, let's get one thing straight. We've been here all night. We can be here all day, tomorrow, the day after that, and the day after that. Yeah. If we got enough to make you on this. You know that. And we're going to stay with you. You tell us the truth. Everything. I've told you all I'm going to tell you. If we stay here for six months, you got it all. This your home phone, Hillside 8321. That's right, 8321. What time does your wife get up, Lavelle? What do you mean? Ben, get an outside line. Yeah. You're not going to call my home. That's Hillside 8321, Ben. Outside, please. Don't do that. Don't. Not my wife. Please. All right. Ask the questions again. This time, I'll give you the answers. Thomas Laval was 38 years old. He was a well-respected man in his community. Sometimes it's like that. You can question a man for hours, and he'll never give you any information. But somewhere in every man's makeup there's a weak point. We were lucky enough to find Laval's. He told us that he would give us the locations where the hijacked goods were hidden. He told us the addresses were written on the ledge of a windowsill on the seventh floor of the Teamsters Union Hall. It was 8.30 a.m. On the seventh floor, is that night? Yeah. Do me a favor. Don't make it too big. Well, look, we have to walk through the hiring hall before we get to the elevators in the back. Yeah? With these handcuffs... They'll see them, all the guys in the hall. They know me. Can't you take them off my wrists till we get in the elevator? Sorry, LaValle. Well, I won't try anything, but don't make me walk in front of them with these on. Sorry. Just till we get in the elevator. Can't you do that? I, I don't want the guys to see me. Well, here's my overcoat, Laval. I'll drape it over your hands here, and they won't see the cuffs. There you are. Come on. Hey, Tom, how are you? Hi. What's new, Tom? Not much. Oh, that was Let's take the elevator. Yeah. Cigarette? No, thanks. Yeah. Yeah.
2: This way. Let me show you. To the left.
1: A window up ahead there. Yeah, this one. I don't see anything on the windowsill. It's on the outside. Open the window and let me check. Yeah. Let me see here. Ben, grab him. He's trying to jump. Hey, Get back here. Get back. I go to you let me go! Get him, Joe! I, I can't go. hold him; he's pulling me out. Hold on, Ben! Grab me, Joe! Yes. Joe! He's slipping! Try, right, Joe! Hold on! Yes. He's kicking loose! I can't hold him! Hold him, Joe! Ben! Oh, <clears throat> I couldn't hold him. You almost went with him. Let's get downstairs.
6: What happened?
1: Call an ambulance. There's been an accident. Thomas Laval was 38 years old. He was a well-respected man in his community. He died with the same reputation. We had a prisoner who had met his death while in our custody. In cases like this, we had to have witnesses. By the time we got to the street, the usual accident crowd had gathered. Anybody here see the accident?
3: What you want, witnesses?
1: Yeah. Did you see it? Yeah, we saw it. Let's get their names, Ben. My mm-hmm. name's Pete Garfield. This is Jack Morris. We'll be your witnesses. You'll probably be subpoenaed for the inquest tomorrow morning. Sure, we'll be there. We saw you push the guy out the window. We saw you kill him. The next morning at 10 a.m. in the basement of the Hall of Justice, Harold J. Lane, Deputy Coroner, City and County of Los Angeles, read the report of the findings of the autopsy on the body of the deceased, Thomas Laval. As is customary at a coroner's inquest, the identification witness was called to testify first. Elizabeth Laval, please. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Yes. Be seated. State your name
6: Elizabeth Laval.
1: What is your address?
6: 1216 East Camarillo Drive.
1: What is your occupation?
6: I'm a housewife.
1: What is your relation to the deceased? His wife. Have you viewed the body of the deceased in this office? Yes. Who was the deceased?
6: Husband. Thomas Laval.
1: Is there anything further you wish to add? Thank you. Step down, please. Joseph Friday. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Be seated. State your name. Joe Friday. What is your address? 4656 Collis Avenue. What is your occupation? I'm a police officer in and for the city of Los Angeles. Are you the investigating and arresting officer on this case? I am. Will you state briefly the facts relating to the death of the deceased? On the morning following the arrest by us of the deceased on suspicion of grand theft merchandise, he expressed a desire to assist us in the apprehension of suspects involved in these thefts and the recovery of property taken in them. Did he assist you? Well, he informed us that if we took him to the Teamsters Union Hall, that he'd be able to obtain addresses of the locations where the stolen property was cached. You then took him there? Yes, we did. What happened? When we arrived, he requested us to remove his handcuffs, We refused. The deceased then informed us that the addresses were written on a window ledge on the seventh floor. When we arrived at the window, under the pretense of searching for the addresses, he threw himself over the ledge. I grabbed his left leg to restrain him, but he kicked loose. Uh, Did you at any time have any idea that the deceased planned such action? I did not. What did you do then? We immediately went to the location of the body and had an ambulance dispatched. Do you have anything further to state? No, I have not. Are there any questions from the jury? That's all, Officer Friday. Step down. Peter Garfield, raise your right hand. Yeah. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Yeah. Be seated. State your name? Pete Garfield. What is your address? 1654 North Pico. What is your occupation? Truck driver down at General Warehouse. Did you know the deceased? Yeah. How did you know him? I worked with him. And that cop's a liar and so is his buddy sitting over there. Please confine the testimony of this inquest to facts. Were you present at the time the deceased met his death? I told you I was. And those two cops pushed Tom out of the window. Where were you at the time the deceased was pushed or jumped from the window? Jack and I just left the union hall. We were going out the front door when it happened. What attracted your attention? I heard him scream. When I looked up, Tom was falling. That cop was standing at the window watching him. Did you see the officer push him? Yes, I saw him. Did I understand you to say you were on the street outside the building at the time? Yeah. And you saw the officers push the deceased from the window on the seventh floor... From your vantage point? Yeah. Isn't it true that that's a physical impossibility? What is? That you could have seen what you testified to from where you were standing.
3: I know they pushed
1: him. You know or you saw? I know that's all. Tom wouldn't jump out of a window. Then it's true you didn't see the officers push the deceased out of the window? No, I didn't see him. Is there anything further you'd like to add? They must have pushed him. Any question from the jury? Let's all Garfield step down. Dorothy River Raise your right hand. Yes. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you God? I do. Be seated. State your name.
6: Dorothy River.
1: What is your address?
6: 211 South Beverly Drive.
1: And what is your occupation?
6: I'm a stenographer at the Teamsters Union Hall.
1: Were you present the morning the deceased met his death? I was. State where you were and what you were doing.
6: I was in our office on the seventh floor doing some filing.
1: Please state what you witnessed.
6: The filing cabinet in our office is by the door. The office faces on the hallway, and the door happened to be open. I heard a commotion and looked out. I saw those two officers struggling with the man.
1: Did you hear any conversation?
6: Yes. I heard that officer there say, get back here, get back. The man outside the window yelled, let me go, let me go. This officer here, Officer Friday, said, he's pulling me out. Hold on, Ben, grab me.
1: How far from the window were you?
6: I'd say about... 15 feet.
1: Do you have anything else to add?
6: Yes. As the two policemen started downstairs, Officer Friday said to me, call an ambulance, there's been an accident.
3: Thank you, Miss River.
6: Those officers didn't push that man out the window. They were trying to hold him.
1: After hearing additional witnesses, the coroner's jury retired at 11.57 a.m. Eight minutes later, they returned with their decision. The deceased met his death voluntarily and by his own actions. The homicide detail continued the investigation of Laval's death. A week went by. With homicide working one side, we hoped that they might turn up additional leads in the hijacking case. Nothing turned up. It seemed that with the death of Thomas Laval, our leads came to an abrupt stop. On Tuesday morning, March 16th at 9 a.m., we got a call from Chief of Detectives Ed Backstrand. Now, once more, what about the waybills on these shipments? You checked them? Everything we could. Talked to everybody in hand. and handled them. And talked to him some more. $42,000 in merchandise doesn't just disappear. Now, who's the last one to handle those waybills? The warehouse shipments, The bills were signed and stamped two hours after he filed them in his desk. They disappeared. Well, what about the truck drivers? You checked them out? Talked to all of them. Nothing so far.
2: Nothing was missing from those shipments until they left the warehouse.
1: Is that right? Yeah, and somewhere in between the warehouse and the delivery points, $42,000 worth of goods disappeared. Somebody's got to be hijacking those loads. We know that, but how do we get to it? Maybe they're working alone. Maybe they're working with the truck drivers. It's one of the others. It's got to be. We just hadn't lost Laval. Well, you lost him. That doesn't close the case. You got a suggestion? Yeah, I got a suggestion. Crack it.
0: You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories from official police files. And now, an important announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we are pleased to
2: announce that starting next Thursday, October 6th, Dragnet will be brought to you by Fatima Cigarettes. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, the listener, for your excellent response to our efforts in bringing you these weekly authentic presentations of actual cases from official files. Your letters are the only indications we have that Dragnet is a
0: source of your listening pleasure. We'd like to hear from all of you. Starting next Thursday, October 6th, over most of these same NBC stations, Dragnet will be heard weekly at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time immediately following the Supper Club. Check your newspaper for local release time.
1: We stayed on the job. Another week went by. No leads. We spent so much time at the General Warehouse where the merchandise disappeared that we almost got to be a part of the crew. We got to know everybody. We made frequent visits to the Teamsters Union Hall. but got us nothing. On Wednesday, March 26th, we reported in for work at 8 a.m.
0: Friday, Romero. Yeah, Skipper. You fooled around just
1: long enough. They hijacked another load last night. $38,000. What outfit? Same. General Warehouse. Who's your contact down there? Ray Hobart, shipping clerk. Hop down there right now and get the details. Right, Ed. There are two ways to solve this thing. Yeah? You can get those hijackers now or wait till General Warehouse goes out of business. Get on it. Hobart, who was the shipping clerk on duty last night?
3: I was, uh, working for Siggy, Siegelmeister. He's out of the cold.
1: And you saw the stuff was loaded on the trucks and you checked the waybill.
3: Yeah, as usual. Everything is usual. Uh, Checked the trucks out at 2 a.m., went back to the office to file the waybills. You
1: work a pretty heavy schedule, Hobart. You started at 2 a.m., and you're still on duty?
3: Uh, It took the last four hours of Siggy's shift at Mm. 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. He had a cold. I was back here at 10 this morning to start my own shift.
1: When did you find out the waybills were missing on that shipment last night? Uh,
3: Just before I went off. Maybe uh, half past 5, quarter
1: to 6. How about the truck drivers who handle that load, Hobart? You got them? Uh...
3: Let's see. I got it right here.
1: Okay.
3: Uh, Here you go, Sergeant. Uh, Jack Morris and Pete Garfield.
1: Jack Morris and Pete Garfield were brought in for questioning. We double-checked with homicide and found that their reports on Morris and Garfield tallied with ours. No previous records. Both men had been tailed for a reasonable length of time since their testimony at the Laval inquest. Their actions failed to implicate them. Four days after the second hijacking, we got a tip from one of our informants down in the warehouse district. He told us that a man in a gray suit had been hanging around the coffee shop next to the Teamsters Union Hall. He was peddling nylon stockings, cheap. There had been other reports like this, which we had followed up, but none of them had paid off. Usually, such leads didn't pay off, but we couldn't be sure. They had to be checked. At a few minutes before five that afternoon, we found the nylon salesman in the gray suit in the back booth of the coffee shop adjoining the Union Hall. Look, Meg. Take a look. The finest. You can't do better. 51-gauge nylon. Look good, huh? Mm, sure do, don't you, Joe? Yeah, they do. We've been looking for you, Mac. Some of the guys in the union hall said that you'd be around. Sure, I saw lots of these around the uh, hall. Truck drivers, just like you, buying them like crazy. Good deal. Sure looks like it, man. How many pair can we have? Many as you want. Four bits a pair, you name it. You got a couple of dozen for us? A couple of dozen? Mm-hmm. No, not on me, but I can get them. Many as you want. Well, we're kind of in a hurry. Can you get them for us fast? A couple of dozen. Better make it three dozen, huh, Joe? Yeah, if you want three dozen. Can you get them now? A couple of hours I can get them. Same quality. Want to meet me here? Oh, I don't know. We wanted them for tonight. My wife's birthday, you know. Well, maybe an hour and a half. How's that? Three dozen. Meet you here. Oh, look, Mac. Uh, maybe we're both heading the same direction. Can't we go with you and pick up the nylon? Save time for all of it.
3: Uh, no, I don't think so. No. Uh, can't you wait? Hour and a half. How's that? Never find a better bite.
1: I'm sorry, Mac. I wish we had the time. Well, where do you have to go to pick up these nylons? Oh, way out. Sunset Boulevard near Fairfax. Can't you wait? I'll make it fast. Well, can't we pay you and then go out and pick them up ourselves? Huh? No. Don't work that way. No. Can't you wait here? Yeah, I'll make it fast. Well, we ought to be home now, Joe. Yeah, I'm sorry, mister. We'll have to skip it. Yeah, maybe we can pick up something on the way home, Ben. Candy or something. Wife likes candy.
3: Now, uh, look, fellas, I, I don't want to see you lose out on this deal. I'll meet you halfway.
1: How do you mean? Uh, Look, together we'll go out to Sunset in Fairfax, huh? Near the place. You wait there at the hamburger stand. And in five minutes, I'll bring you the stuff, okay? Oh, I don't know. We're late already, but... All right, it's a deal. I'll call the wife and tell her we're gonna be a little later. Three dozen, is that right?
3: Three dozen are the best. You can't do better.
1: All right, I'll be back in just a minute. 523. Chief of Detectives Office, Chandler. Mike, Joe Friday, backstrand there? Out right now, Joe. Well, then do me a favor, Chandler. Make it fast. Get a couple of men out to Sunset and Fairfax as fast as you can. Tell them to watch for Ben and me. You got that? Yeah, what else? We'll drive up in our car with another man. Ben and I will get out of the car and go in the hamburger stand. The other man will walk off. Whoever you get, tell them to follow that man. You got it? Right. All right. Just tail him. See where he goes. See what he does. Okay, Joe, right away. All set, Jill? She got dinner ready? Yeah, just about. We better hustle. Sure. Best deal in the world. Let's go. At five minutes to six, we pulled up at the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Fairfax. It was almost dark. Ben and I got out of the car and started over for the hamburger stand on the corner. We caught a glimpse of Barcy and Kaplan in one of our detective cars parked in a gas station on the opposite corner. They had their eyes on our man. When the traffic signals changed, the man crossed the street and headed down Fairfax... Barcy and Kaplan waited a minute and then they took off after him. He turned at the next corner and disappeared from sight. Ben and I ordered a cup of coffee and we sat down to wait. At half past six, we were still waiting. At five minutes to seven, I went across the street to the drugstore and called the office. Barcy and Kaplan hadn't been heard from. Their car, 105K, was not acknowledging calls. I had my call switch from communications to Backstrand's office.
0: Well, they lost him, in. I don't know how they lost
2: him, but they lost him.
1: Well, who's out there now?
2: Sullivan and Whitney took a detail out there. They're combing the neighborhood right
1: now. Well, how did it happen? A man just doesn't disappear into thin air. That's what I keep telling you about that stuff that's been hijacked. The search for the nylon salesman went on all that night and most of the next day. From his description, we ran a make on him. No previous record. He had disappeared completely. We were right back where we'd started from. The only thing we could do was to start backtracking, re-questioning the people at General Warehouse, the truck drivers, the shipping clerks... We kept a close check on Garfield and Morris, and, and we went back to the only possible lead still remaining, Mrs. Laval. She could tell us nothing more than we already knew. When we left her, we started on the neighbors for the second time around. For the rest of the day, we canvassed the immediate neighborhood. We got as many opinions of the Lavals as they had neighbors. At 3.30 that afternoon, we visited with Miss Gertrude Langster, a 50-year-old maiden lady who lived almost directly across the street from the Laval house been out of town the first time we covered the neighborhood.
6: The old saying goes, Sergeant, there's no fool like an old fool. Oh, say, if I told you the chances I had when I was a girl... Yeah, but we Ooh, just... not won't... truck drivers like that. Laval, man, God rest his soul. But fine, wealthy men, bankers, well, you... lawyers. Templeton Grant, you remember him? Think no, like ma'am. A... Would... I was engaged to him once. Mm. Butterfly waste. that's what he used to call me. Well, well Mr... I was slim in those days. Would you like to see some pictures of me as a girl? No,
1: no, thank you, ma'am. We'd just like to ask you a few questions, that's all. Could you tell us if the Lavals had many visitors to their house in the past six months or so?
6: Oh, my no. Funniest thing, I am the nosy type, Sergeant. I like to know everything that goes on around my neighborhood. And you can take my word for it, the Lavals never had visitors. You know, Sergeant Friday, you remind me of a young man I used to be engaged to just a few years ago. Yes, Miss Langston.
1: Now, would you tell us, please... Uh, did you have any reason to think that there was something little out of the ordinary about the Laval?
6: Oh, little out of the ordinary, he says. But my dear man, yes. Here he was, a truck driver, and there she was with a home furnished like the asters. Why, I even used to see him cart some of the things home in that car. His beautiful things, rugs and glassware, bolts of fabric. Oh, gorgeous.
1: And he'd bring these things home after work. Is that it, Miss oh, Langston?
6: Anytime, anytime. Day or night, weekends, anytime. time.
1: Mm-hmm. After four, Joe, we better call office. Yeah. Are you sure of all that you've told us, Miss Langster? Sure.
6: Oh, my dear man, of course I'm sure I watched him week after week.
1: Well, thank well, you.
6: Well, uh, won't you stay for a cup of tea? I'll have Josephine fix it. Josephine? Uh, no, thank you, ma'am. Well, then, uh, perhaps a glass of sherry?
1: Thank you, no. But there is something. Yes? I wonder if we could use your phone, please.
6: Oh, uh, yes. In the hall, next to the umbrella stand.
1: Thank you, ma'am.
2: 2523.
1: 2523. Thanks, Trent. Friday, Ed. Nothing much here. Well,
2: there's something here. Barcy and Kaplan just called. Pete
1: Garfield left his house half an hour ago. Then he picked up Morris. Well, what's so unusual about that? Nothing except the guy
2: driving the car is the little man in the gray suit, the nylon salesman. Barcy and Kaplan are tailing him. Where are they now? Headed north out Riverside Drive. Well,
1: there's nothing out there but a golf course and a lot of riding stables.
3: I don't care what they do for recreation. Go get them. Mm.
1: With red light and siren, it took us 12 minutes to pick up Barcy and Kaplan on Riverside Drive. At 4.23 p.m., we pulled up in front of the Blue Pony riding stables. Barcy and Kaplan's car was overturned just beyond the driveway leading up to the riding academy. Kaplan's hurt. I called an ambulance. They rammed us. What kind of a car are they in? They're Swiss. They're driving a 12-ton Bulldog semi. Which way'd they head? Going north. Got a three-minute lead on you. Pneumatic commercial, Adam 653. Let's go, Ben. Can you see him, Joe? No, not yet. Watch that crossing. Up ahead, Joe. That's a semi. Can you read it? Wait a minute. Adams 653. That's them. Took a ride on Lancashire. Don't lose them. They're pushing that semi too hard. Look at that trailer sway. They'll have to stay on Lancashire. They're going too fast to turn now. Traffic's closing in up ahead of them. They better not turn. That's what they're doing. Look at that trailer whip. They're going over into that star front. Come on, ben. You all right? Wait a minute. Let me see. Yeah, they're banged up, but they're alive. <sighs> well, there they are, Joe. Yeah. Garfield, Morris, Little Man, and the Grace. Of... It's funny, isn't it? What's that? Garfield's going to swear we pushed that truck through that window.
2: The story you have just heard is true.
0: Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Peter Garfield, Jack Morris, and John Dolfo, the stocking salesman, were hospitalized and later brought to trial. They were convicted on charges of grand theft and received sentences as prescribed by law. They are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 18th in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the Office of Acting Chief of Police W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department.
2: Tonight's program is dedicated to Motorcycle Officer Elmer Forsman of the Fresno, California Police Department who on the afternoon of October 6th, 1946 gave his life so that yours might be more secure.
0: Remember, starting next Thursday night, October 6th Fatima Cigarettes invite you to listen to Dragnet immediately following the Supper Club. That's 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over most of these same NBC stations. Check your newspaper for local release time. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. Judy Canova joins the star lineup of
2: Saturday shows tonight on NBC.